Blood Bond by Nick Bastin. Copyright 2019, Nick Bastin. Chapter 74, released. Alistair stood at the door for at least two minutes, trying different sides of the security pass or swiping in different directions, all with the same result. He'd even passed down the corpses to see if he could find any other cards that might work. Nothing made any difference. He thought about trying to shoot the hinges off, or the lock, but the thickness of the door meant that it was hopeless. Thinking laterally, he went to the cells, opening each of them and dropping ladders down to release any prisoners still held inside. The wails as he lifted each hatch were terrifying, reflecting the misery these poor wretches had suffered. He didn't have much time to tell each in turn, but as soon as the first prisoner had made it out, he explained that he was going to try and free them, but they would need to fight their way out. Ultimately, there were about nine or ten prisoners, as they ransacked the white room looking for anything that could be used as a weapon, knives, hammers, saws and a few fire extinguishers. As soon as the guards came through the door, Alistair said he would shoot as many as he could, and that they should all try and rush the door. Any weapons that came to hand should be grabbed and put to good use. His fellow gales were in a bad way. They had no clothes. Some had obviously broken bones or missing fingernails. They were all covered in cuts and bruises. But he could tell that for the most part they were Dunyawassel, fighters. By the assortment of tattoos they bore, they were from a range of clans. But they knew their fate if they stayed and would do anything in their power to escape. He was counting on them causing some serious confusion and mayhem, hopefully enough to allow him to slip away, if possible. He did not owe them anything more. Had he not freed them, surely that was enough. The alarm was still blaring in his ear. It was beginning to drive him insane. He had long since given up trying to talk to Fiona and was now reduced to sitting, staring at the steel door. It was during this vigil that the LED switched from red to green. With a shout, he ran at the door, yanking it open before it could change its mind. As the heavy door swung inwards, the tattered mob that were his foot soldiers surrounded him. They started the long climb towards the surface. Sub-level five was still quiet and he forced the prisoners he had released to free the other prisoners they could find, dividing them into groups of two. They ran down either side of the corridor, opening hatches and dropping ladders. Weight of numbers was going to be invaluable as they got to the higher levels. But more than that, he wanted to give the prisoners, whatever they may have done, a fighting chance. Finally, he found a corner where the alarm was not so loud. He felt like his brain was dissolving and tried to raise Fiona on the earpiece. Fiona! Fiona, are you there? he shouted. Nothing. Fiona, for fuck's sake, it's Alistair. Where are you? I'm down with sub-level five, and I'm awful keen to get the fuck out of here. Fiona suddenly responded. Alistair, thank God, where have you been? We were so worried. Aye, well, let's not spraff about that now. I need you to turn that fucking alarm off. It's not only driving me insane, but it will be attracting every member of the clan lament in the whole district to the castle. Can you not kill it? Pull the fuses? Anything. Got it. I'm on it. She was gone. He'd not even had a chance to ask about Nin, but he needn't have worried. Nin's cheerful voice suddenly crackled on the line. Fucking hell, Alistair McGregor, where the fuck are you? Do you need my help? No, think I'm okay for the moment, just on sub-level five with a bunch of crazies at my back. Figured we could do with evening the numbers a little, just working our way up now. Okay, said Nin. I'm on sub-level four. I've got McCallan Moore, but Kirsty's nowhere to be seen. He paused and then said to Fiona, Fiona, can you check the castle records? Has she been taken anywhere? The infirmary or, or for questioning? 
I'm fucked if we're going to leave her behind. I can't do two things at once, can I? Irritation creeping into Fiona's voice for the first time. I'm almost on top of the alarm, though. It looks like I just need to kill the whole emergency response system, and that should do it. Whatever it takes. I can't take any more, Alistair shouted, exasperatedly. The ringing stopped. For a few seconds, he felt that he could hear its penetrating, insistent rhythm, but the calm that descended was worth at least five extra men as far as Alistair was concerned. He could think now, and thinking was the only thing that was going to get them out of there. Judging by the stench behind him, the number of free prisoners was growing. He could barely bring himself to look at them. The misery that they had been through was written in their eyes and carved on their flesh. Retribution was coming for Lament. Of that he was sure. But his priority was to get out of this fucking hole. Sweeping up his ragtag band, they ran up the stairs to sub-level four. He kept a close dialogue going with Nin to make sure they did not shoot each other by accident. As he came up onto the top of the stairs, he saw Nin with the dishevelled figure of McCallum Moore at his shoulder. Once more directing his men to release any prisoners, he and Nin huddled on the stairwell to agree a plan. Getting to the service was the only priority and to get there as soon as possible. As the three prisoners milled around, they put McCallum Moore between them and ran up the stairs, each tread taking them closer to the surface in freedom. It was as they turned out of the stairwell to the deep levels that they ran into serious opposition. As they approached the top of the stairs, Alistair could see the red pencil beams of tactical gun sights crisscrossing the corridor ahead. With the press of the crowd behind them, the momentum was too great to stop in time. Instead, as they reached the top of the stairs, he put his arm out across McCallum Moore and grabbed Nin's webbing, throwing all three of them forward onto the floor and halfway through an open door across the passage. The corridor behind them exploded in a hail of gunfire as bullets bit and chipped at the walls and ricocheted around the passage. Some of the prisoners behind were not so lucky and were gunned down, leaving the floor strewn with a pile of screaming and thrashing bodies. Their opponents, in no mood for mercy, poured another sustained burst of fire into the writhing mess, silencing them utterly. Alison knew they only had seconds before grenades or gas be rolled down to finish them off. He crouched by the door, yelling at Nin to cover him, before throwing himself on top of the bodies in the corridor. As he hit the floor, he pressed the bomber solace stud on the barrel of his assault rifle, praying that Natasha hadn't overplayed its effectiveness. The explosion of light that strobed the other end of the corridor illuminated in a horrifying post-apocalyptic diorama. At least a dozen black-clad and heavily armed men staggered, clutching their eyes, shouting and falling over each other in total disarray. Nin sprayed them with automatic gunfire, pouring lead into the confined space. They were trapped like fish in a barrel. While a few tried to return fire blindly, their shots were wild and hit their own men rather than the grim and desperate horde that poured up the corridor towards them. In seconds they were swamped, and the scene descended into one side of Malay, with the sighted unquestionably having the advantage. The prisoner's revenge was medieval, and only took seconds for the remaining laments to be torn apart. Arashanin caught their breath, allowing their allies to help themselves to clothes and weapons. Although they were still on sub-level three, Alistair felt like they were almost on the home straight. Once their motley crew had stripped all they could from the dead laments, they moved to the next stairwell, the one that would take them to the surface. Frenzied shouts came over his earpiece with Charlie and Gillespie excitedly talking over each other. Charlie won out. Oh shit, guys, you've got to get a move on. There are trucks of men massing by the front gates. If you don't get out of there now, you're never going to. We can lay down some covering fire to try and keep them back, but it's not going to hold them for very long. Grabbing Nina McCallan Moore, Alistair sprinted for the stairs. He hadn't come this far to be entombed in the Lamentations dungeon. The horde behind followed. The next few minutes passed in a series of jump-cut scenes, 
as they fought to get out. The stairs, a burst of fire to take down a crouching figure, fingers fumbling with his webbing, loading a fresh magazine, diving for cover under a hail of fire from behind an upturned desk, throwing a grenade, an explosion, followed by silence, on his feet, running, out of the stairwell now, down the corridor towards the kitchen, the door opening, a looming shadow, a pointed gun, a flash of light, a giant's punch throwing him backwards, stars, the ceiling, nothing. Chapter 75. The Gate. Charlie and Gillespie were looking down from their vantage point towards the gates in the glen below the castle. Two covered trucks had arrived and the gatekeeper was speaking to the lead driver. They did not look particularly concerned, and it seemed possible that although they knew the alarm had gone off, they thought it was a drill or a false alarm. Charlie fretted as to what to do. On the one hand, if he started shooting, he would confirm that there was a serious incident underway. On the other hand, if he did nothing, then two truckloads of troops would soon arrive, tipping the odds firmly against them. Gillespie took the binoculars from him, studying the gates and the gatehouse. The next second he was on the earpiece to Fiona. Fiona, see if you can't find the electrical system for the front gates, the power or fuses. Anything you can do to seal them and buy us some time would be amazing. Fiona tapped furiously in the background, searching for the right system folders. It was taking too long. Fiona came back on the earpiece. Okay, I think I've found the right system prompt and I've just put a little block on there. Hopefully they won't be able to open the gates, at least electrically. There's probably a manual override, but this will buy a little time. Squinting through the afternoon sun, he could see that the men at the gates were wrapping up their conversation. The gatekeeper returned to his booth to open the gates. Nothing happened. He came out and looked at the big steel gates mounted on their heavily rusticated stone piers. He shrugged, rubbed his head and went back inside to try the button again. Nothing happened. The driver of the lorry now got out to come to look at the problem, and for a few minutes there was an almost comical scratching of heads and pressing of the button. Eventually they gave up, and the gatekeeper went to find the equipment needed to open the gates manually. While the gatekeeper was rummaging in his boo, the flash from the rear elevation of the castle caught Charlie's eye. Someone was trying to open one of the first floor windows. It was clearly stiff, and some of the panes of glass got broken, judging by the faint tinkle he could hear. Then a familiar head poked out, looking from left to right. Surely that was Kirsty. He grabbed the binoculars off Gillespie. It was Kirsty. She was clearly making her own escape. She pulled herself onto the window ledge before turning and starting to lower herself to get as close to the ground as she could before letting go. At that moment, two laments burst out of the back door, guns raised and shouting at her as she hung from the ledge. There was nothing else for it. Charlie shouldered his rifle in a flash, squeezing off two shots. The first caught one of the lamps in the torso, the impact crumpling him forward onto the grass. The other went low, hitting the remaining lamps in his right thigh, buckling his leg from under him. Once on the ground, it was a simple matter for Charlie to put another round in each of them to ensure they moved no more. Kirsty dropped to the ground and looked around, trying to locate her saviour. Unable to identify where the shots had come from, she stooped, took the guns from the dead lamps and headed for the cover of the forestry. This was directly below their position, and Charlie urged Gillespie to go and catch her before she disappeared into the great impenetrable forest. While Gillespie crashed off into the undergrowth, Charlie turned his attention back to the gate. Due to his very efficient silence, the force at the gate couldn't hear his shots, and was still standing around chatting while the gatekeeper tried to manually open the gate's mechanism with what looked like a huge Allen key. With every turn of the key, the gate opened a little more. It was slow progress, but they were getting there. Charlie thought about popping a few shots in the gatekeeper just to slow them down, but that would just broadcast the real state of affairs at the castle. 
and he wanted to keep them in the dark about that for as long as possible. Which wasn't very long, as the unmistakable sound of machine gun fire now rent the calm afternoon air, a long controlled burst coming from inside the castle. Charlie could hear screams and yells too as people poured from the front and back doors. Some of these stopped to fire back at the castle as they ran down the lawn to the loch below. There could now be no doubt as to what was happening, and the group at the gates redoubled their efforts to get the gates open. Rather than shooting the gatekeeper, Charlie waited until the first truck was accelerating through the gates before firing a burst at the front tyres, both of which exploded, and then at the engine grill in an effort to immobilise it. The driver persisted trying to force the truck through the gates, knowing that he could not leave it blocking the entrance. Reluctantly, Charlie put a bullet in the fuel tank behind the driver's cab. The resulting fireball engulfed the vehicle, propelling a thick black cloud high into the sky. To his relief, most of the men in the back seemed to escape unscathed but the driver was not so lucky. Then he saw them fall out of the back door, Nina McCallan Moore, either side of a slumped Alistair, soaked in blood and clearly unconscious. Nin was shouting at McCallan Moore and they staggered like a trio of drunks across the grass towards the trees. A wild and motley crowd spilled out of the castle after them, brandishing weapons and adding to the chaos as they scattered in all directions. Charlie shouldered his rifle and pack. He had to get to Nin. Chapter 76. Breakout. It had been that cunt Davy Lamont that had caught Alistair with a shotgun. Nin regretted that he hadn't hit him harder with the rolling pin. An easy thought to have now, but that sort of violence was not in his nature. As Alistair was blown backwards by the force of the blast, Nin found himself staring down the barrel of the shotgun. In the nanosecond before Davy pulled the trigger, three shots rang out, throwing Davy backwards and spraying blood up the wall behind him. Nin turned to see McCallum Moore lowering his hand, the pistol still smoking. Without a word, they both turned to Alice's blood-soaked body. Nin grabbed one arm and McCallum Moore the other. They dragged him up that last flight of stairs. Fortunately, there did not seem to be any resistance left on the ground floor. But as he staggered out through the back door and into the late afternoon sunshine, Nin rued that he'd missed the opportunity to put a bullet in that bitch for a receptionist. Alice was a dead weight and after the stress of the day it was a load that there was almost too much for him to bear. McCallum Moore was also weak, and then felt that he was having to drag them both across the lawn to the shelter of the forest. The bushes to his left suddenly exploded as a black-clad figure leapt out in front of them. Nin was too slow and tired now. He half-heartedly raised his assault rifle before realising with spine-chilling relief that it was Charlie. Fucking idiot. He'd get himself killed doing that. His legs then turned to jelly and he crumpled to the floor. He and Alistair were dragged by Charlie and McCallum Moore into the cover of the Ponticum, where Charlie splashed water on his face from his canteen, the cool water snapping him back into focus. He grabbed the canteen from Charlie's hand and drinking greedily from it before handing it to McCallum Moore, who drained every last drop. Nin knew that it was critical to use the confusion of the mass breakout to get to the boat. If the Lamonts got themselves organised, they would be caught, no question. He racked his brain to think of what to do next. What would tip the odds in their favour? Remembering Fiona, he realised that because they were out of range of the castle's Wi-Fi, his connection to the comms channel had been cut. He needed to log back in. He pulled out his phone to dial the number and immediately realised what they should do. As soon as he was reconnected to the group, he spurted, Cut the fucking network, Fiona. Cut the bastard's phone network. Shut them down. Can you do that? Fiona, somewhat flustered by the dramatic and strident intervention, replied, Aye, well, I could probably do something, maybe just by shutting down the entire network server. That should cut everything for a good few hours, at least until they figure out how to restart it. Aye, whatever. 
Just do it, anything to make it hard for them to get organised, to give us a fighting chance getting out of here alive. OK, OK, I'm on the case. Nin looked around the group. Alistair was lying unconscious at his feet, peppered with shots and still seeping blood. McCallum Moore was still with them, but clearly fading fast as his body burned through the last of his adrenaline. And Charlie, good old Charlie, how he wanted to hug him, but now was not the moment. They had to get moving towards the boat. Where's Gillespie? he asked Charlie. He disappeared to look for Kirsty. We saw her escape the castle. He went after her to bring her to the boat. We've been trying to raise him on the comms channel, but not getting any response. He could be out of signal or battery, who knows, but we can't reach him for the moment. Nin gasped. What? Kirsty's alive? Oh my God, I don't believe it. You've no idea how that makes me feel. To hear those words. To think that we could have gone through all of that, in which he gestured with a bloody finger at the castle. For nothing. Jesus. He sank to his knees, clutching his hands to his face, his eyes shining with tears, the stress of the last few hours threatening to overwhelm him. He caught himself and sucked in a deep lungful of that damp cowl air its leathery mustiness infinitely preferable to the fetid rank of Ascog's sublevels. He breathed it out slowly, and by the time his lungs were empty, he had regained his composure. Getting to his feet, he gave Alistair's assault rifle to McCallan Moore. With Charlie on the other side, he picked Alistair up and started down the hill. He kept in the shade of the Ponticum as much as possible to stay out of view from any onlookers below. For the time being, they were hidden from the main Lament force at the front gates, or any that were left in the castle. They obviously could not retrace their steps to the harbour, but had planned a contingency. This took them down the glen behind the Castle Rock and over the neighbouring promontory to the north, known as Barnadav, or the Stag's Pinnacle. They kept heading west through the forestry they had eventually hit the Gleanan Burn, the stream that flowed into Loch Fine. By following this, they had come out on the, on the shore at Gleanan Bay, the next bay up the coast from Port of Addy. Ian the Rat and Bridge would pick them up from there as soon as night fell. While that seemed an entirely sensible plan when scouting the terrain on a map, it didn't take into account the thickness of the Ponticum and the condition of the walkers. Nin had serious doubts that they were going to be able to make it, given the state of Alistair and McCallum Moore, both of whom were fading fast, not to mention McCallum Moore's lack of shoes. He called a halt at the next clearing to bind Alistair's wounds to staunch the flow of blood. They also needed to get some calories into McCallum Moore, or else he was just going to topple over. They didn't have much in the way of field dressings, Charlie did have a can of spray-on wound sealant, and having exposed the mess of Alice's chest, he gave it a good going over until the can was empty. At least the blood from the many pellet wounds stopped seeping. They could do no more, but if he was to survive, he needed proper treatment as soon as possible. McCallum Moore was an easier fix, at least for the time being. Nin found a couple of high-energy bars, one quick release and one slow, to give him the best possible boost to his reserves. The distance wasn't far, probably less than two miles, but it was through thick cover and that would slow the pace dramatically. They needed to get to the pickup point as soon as possible. They couldn't afford to tarry to look for Gillespie and Kirsty. The Lamonts would soon be combing the entire peninsula using dogs, thermal imaging equipment, night vision, anything and everything to try and find the perpetrators. The Lamonts knew better than anyone that to fail would be to risk the wrath of the lamentation, and that was not something anyone would want to bring on themselves. Chapter 77 the Gleanan Burn. Gillespie ran down the hill trying to get to Kirsty before she disappeared into the undergrowth. He felt like he was under assault from the Ponticum as he struggled through it, flailing his arms to try and push it aside. In return, it tried to trip him up with its gnarly branches, slap him in the face with its leathery leaves, and poke him in the eye with its sharp pointed twigs. Anything to impede his progress. 
It was like it was alive, part of the malevolent force that seeped from Ascog into the landscape. As he got to the bottom of the castle rock, he just caught sight of Kirsty's back disappearing into the undergrowth on the other side of the back drive. Sprinting across the tarmac, he called out, but she'd already disappeared into the green curtain of forest. He crashed after her, calling her name, desperately looking for evidence of her passage through the bushes. He could now hear her just up ahead, as she desperately tried to escape from what she must have imagined were lament pursuers. He redoubled his efforts, finally catching up as she was sent sprawling face first into the dirt by a low-lying branch. As he put his hand out to her, she turned with ferocious force and tried to throw him to the ground. Fortunately for Gillespie, she recognised him as she turned, eyes widening in astonishment, and she was able to pull her blows. Even in her weakened state, she was a formidable opponent. Her blows turned into a bear hug. She held him close, lying in the muddy bog of the great impenetrable forest. He could hear her crying, sobbing in his ear, and a wet trail of tears coursed down his cheek. He comforted her, telling her that it was okay, that they'd come to rescue her. All they needed to do was get to the boat. She couldn't speak yet, but she nodded, releasing him so they could both get up. It was Kirsty that spoke first. We need to get out of here. They'll be coming for us. Don't let them take me back there. Please, promise me. The look she gave him would have melted stone. He reassured her that he had no intention of allowing them to be caught. They stood up to survey their surroundings. Under the canopy of the Ponticum there was a thick, greeny gloom that hung in the air. In every direction it looked the same. Bare gnarled branches reached up their leaved tips to the light. There were occasional clearings where the sunlight could penetrate, but mostly they were covered by the thick, leathery umbrella of the rhododendron forest. He tried to figure out the way they had come, but despite the violence of their passage through the undergrowth, there was now no obvious sign of their route. He took out his phone to check for signal. There was nothing. He had been roaming on the clan alignment network, something that as a foreigner he was able to do, but it seemed like the network had now disappeared completely. He didn't even have one bar. It was very strange. He had to figure out a way to get to the pickup point. He knew he had to go due west. That would take them to the Glen and Burn, which bisected this part of the peninsula, would ultimately take them to the beach pickup point. He would normally use the GPS on his phone to guide him. Instead, they'd have to rely on the position of the sun. But the thickness of the cover in the forest was such that the sun could barely be seen, unless you stood in one of the occasional clearings. This made it very hard to follow a direct line, and the terrain was so uneven due to rocks, undergrowth, bogs and burns, not to mention the dread ponticum, they frequently had to stop to try and reassess their direction. The last thing they wanted was to go around in a circle and find themselves back at the castle. After they had been walking for what felt like hours, Gillespie realised that the sun was beginning to set, and while this meant they had a reasonable idea of the direction they needed to follow, it also meant that they were running out of time to make it to the shore. Once night had settled, there was no way they were going to be able to navigate their way through this impossible undergrowth. Another consideration was that Kirsty was in a bad way. Initially, she'd been suffering a tide of adrenaline, but as that had ebbed, her energy levels had plummeted, and their progress had become leaden. Part of the problem was that her feet were being torn apart by the forest floor, which despite the abundance of mud had its fair share of sharp and lacerating objects too. Fallen branches, stones, roots, all of which had taken their toll on the soles of her feet. As the adrenaline had worn off, so too had her ability to ignore the pain. She was now leaning heavily on Gillespie as they picked and staggered their way through the undergrowth. Time seemed to stand still in the great impenetrable forest, as if each moment lasted an hour in its turgid, energy-sapping green gloom. Even though their eyes were accustomed to the half-light under the leaves, Gillespie knew that dusk was now upon them, 
and with it the trips and stumbles over the tree roots and branches became more frequent, the eye-threatening pokes became more determined, and the sudden appearance of rocks or holes to stub or swallow a foot meant that progress was glacial. He was exhausted. He began to wonder if they were lost, despite the fading glimmer of light on the unseen horizon ahead of them. Surely if the sun sets in the west and they could not go wrong. He found himself doubting even this most basic logic. He was now carrying Kirsty, her feet dragging behind. She was still conscious but unable to walk a step further. This made it impossible for him to push the ponticum out of his face, and the steady wet slap of the leaves as he walked through its branches left cuts and lacerations in their wake. As the last of the light faded, he heard voices. They were muffled through the leaves, but close. He sank to the ground, tears welling at the thought they were going to be caught now, when they had come so far. He'd failed, failed Kirsty, and failed himself. Even the simple task of getting to the extraction point had been too much for him. He shuddered at the thought of the fate that awaited him in John Lamont's basement. And Kirsty, brave Kirsty, who had already endured so much, and had escaped only to now be sucked back to that circle of hell. And then he heard the voice saying crossly, For fuck's sake, Charlie, get a fucking grip under his arm. We can't drop him now. Gillespie could have burst with joy at the relief of hearing the unmistakable sound of Nin chiding Charlie. Gillespie tried to call them, but only a hoarse whisper came out. Instead, he used the last of his energy to push through the ponticum that separated them, and in so doing, practically fell into the gleaming burn at their feet. Chapter 78. On to the Loch. They knew that something must be going on, as the men on the quayside all started up the hill towards the castle, jabbering and calling to each other while checking their weapons. Brijni and quickly agreed they should cast off while the going was good, before anyone could try and lock down the pier. Having unhooped their cable from the mooring bollard, Brij put the boat in gear and putted out of the harbour. It was a beautiful clear evening, with the sun starting to set almost directly behind Tarbot across the loch. Gentle hills of Napdale shone a brilliant emerald green in the hazy yellow light. The loch itself was still very calm, barely a ripple on its surface, but the temperature was falling with the sun, it was going to be cold on the water. She left the harbour wall behind and followed the coast of Cowell north up Loch Fyne. She passed the ferry terminal and the salmon cages, and turned out past the tidal island of Elinabeach, which marked the southern end of Gleenham Bay. This island was covered in the birch trees that gave it its name, the tips of their branches just whispering in the almost non-existent breeze. She marvelled at how calm and beautiful the world was when left to its own devices. The bay was pincer-shaped, with the northern claw being closed by another small island, Elinavuk, the island of goats. The shore itself was divided by three small headlands separated by sweeps of sand that ran up to where the canopy of Ponticum and forestry ended. She moored off the deepest part, where she could get her stern as close to the shore as possible. Now all they could do was wait as the gloaming slipped into night. She had almost given up hope when she saw the first shape stagger onto the sand. It had gone 8pm and the blackness of the forest lay thick and brooding on the shore, so its disgorging of the ragged group on the far side of the bay was unexpected and very welcome. That relief was tempered when she first heard the sound of the helicopter. It wasn't overhead, but it could be heard in the distance circling the castle. She chucked the binoculars at Ian while she went down below to check on the prisoners. For the most part, they'd been pretty patient. After all, it cannot have been much fun lying under a blanket with your arms bound for most of a day. That patience seemed to be coming to an end, and the struggling and muffled yelling had been getting on her nerves. With the arrival of their new prisoners, the vessel could not afford the extra weight, so it was time for them to get off. 
She ushered them both at gunpoint out of the cabin and onto the deck. While the rat held her pistol, she cut their bonds and pushed them backwards overboard into the shallow water of the loch. They spluttered and swore as they hauled themselves onto the beach, cursing Breach and the rat with all manner of feuds and bloodletting. After being bound for so long, they were stiff and cramped and were unable to do more than sit on the sand and swear. It took all Breach's and Ian's strength to help lift the shore party aboard. The only one who was actually able to climb the short ladder unaided was Charlie, who came last. They delicately laid Alistair and Kirsty on the benches in the cabin. He was still breathing, but hadn't regained consciousness, which Breach thought was a bad sign. After putting the injured below, she could finally turn to McCallan Moore. She wrapped her arms around him, holding him close to her, as she'd feared this moment would never come. He looked at her, too tired to speak, to groan or even to cry. He just held her in his gaze before pressing his forehead against hers and giving her a kiss. A single, solitary, gentle kiss that embodied more pent-up emotion than Breach had ever felt in her life before. There was no time for more extravagant welcomes. They still had to get beyond Lamont's grasp, and that meant getting up the loch to Inverary. She was concerned about the helicopter too. The rat pulled up the anchor and they moved off onto the loch. Everyone on board felt an undeniable sense of relief at last to be moving away from their shore and putting some distance between them and the Lamentations' lair. They were not out of the woods yet, but there was no question that the further they were away from Castle Ascog, the happier they all felt. The rat was running with no lights to minimise the chance of being spotted, and he pulled a large arc around the Isle of Goats to ensure they didn't run aground. Once in the main body of the loch, he steered for the silvery water in the middle of the channel and opened up the boat's engines, powering them up the loch at high speed. Bridge looked back to the harbour of Portavadi, it was brilliantly lit and ablaze with activity. She could see the helicopter was sweeping the great impenetrable forest to the north of the castle with a searchlight, presumably hunting down the other escapees. She shuddered as she wondered if the helicopter had thermal imaging equipment on it. If it did, then picking them off would be child's play. She watched the aircraft circle before holding still over a particular spot, pausing for a moment before moving on to a fresh target. They were making good progress down the loch when she realised that the helicopter seemed to be coming in their direction. Despite the speed they were making, the helicopter was unquestionably faster. And after a few minutes, there could be no doubt that it was chasing them. It moved out over the loch surface, still a mile behind but gaining, the white disc of its searchlight racing up the water of the loch towards them. Through the binoculars, she could now see other boats setting out from the harbour in hot pursuit. These were high-speed, rigid inflatable boats, faster yet than their boat. She had no doubt that despite their head start, they would be caught before they got to the safety of Inverary. She shouted at the rat to warn him, and he raised his hand in acknowledgement, but all he could do was keep the boat flat out and hope for the best. She spoke to Fiona on the comms channel, telling her to make sure that whatever brilliant ideas Duncan Campbell had, they'd better be good or else the chief was going to end up dead, along with the rest of them. Charlie reloaded his rifle while she and Nin grabbed the assault rifles. Finally, she sent McCallum more below. He nearly passed out and was clearly in no state to do anything. She'd also told Gillespie to get below, a little more briskly than she'd meant to, and to take all the backpacks and other junk that was clogging up the deck with him. He meant well, but this was no place for a greenhorn. She needed clear decks. As the helicopter closed in, Charlie squeezed off a few shots, several of which hit it, sending sparks flying, but not bringing it down or seemingly doing any real damage. The helicopter passed over them. It had its port side door open, and a man with a rifle was hanging out of it on a tether. His first few shots went wide, but as his aim improved, the bullets started hitting the vessel, tearing great chunks out of the deck and the gunwale. Breach and Nin both opened up with their assault rifles, trying to track the aircraft as it passed over them. 
They could see their bullets were hitting its fuselage, but they didn't seem to be making any impact. Bridge realised with horror that Lament must have had his helicopter armour-plated. The sniper in the sky kept raining down fire on them. There was a terrible sense of inevitability to what happened next, with the boat suddenly slowing to a crawl as a bullet hit some vital piece of equipment. The crack of shots from above continued relentlessly, and without warning the boat turned so dramatically the breach was almost thrown overboard. As she picked herself up, she looked across to the helm. Ian the rat was lying dead on the wheel, blood pouring from his side. The bullet had entered his shoulder and exited from his waist, leaving a gaping hole through every major organ. It must have killed him instantly. The next shot caught Charlie, throwing him into the scuppers with a scream and spinning the rifle out of his hands. There was a pause while the sniper reloaded. Bridge, with tears in her eyes, went and stopped the engine. There was nothing more they could do. She raised her hands in the air. Nin was down in the scuppers with Charlie, cradling his head in his arms, crying. His world shrunk to that square foot. Nothing else mattered. The helicopter hovered above them and came lower so they could hear the voice over its loudspeaker. Put your hands on your heads. Everyone in the boat must come on deck with your hands on your head or else we'll sink your vessel now. Come on deck with your hands on your head now. Kirsty McCallum Moore came out first, their faces white with horror at how close they'd come to escaping. They were downcast and silent. Next, Gillespie came up the companionway, his hands clasped above his head. Bridge could hear boats approaching. They were that close. They all looked at the helicopter, its downdraft beating the surface of the loch, the sound deafening. From the corner of her eye, Bridge caught something tiny flash out of the cabin hatch. She then looked over at Gillespie, who was doing something strange with his hands, as if trying to cast a spell. He was moving them in barely perceptible, very deliberate movements above his head. What was he trying to do, the idiot? She then realised he had something small in his right hand, too small for a gun. It was a phone, his phone. Why was he waving his phone like that? She tracked his focus gaze to the open door of the helicopter where it was hovering 20 metres above and behind them, the sniper covering them with his rifle. Suddenly, out of the gloom of the night, a tiny drone, no bigger than a bat, flew in through the open door of the helicopter, past the shoulder of the sniper, and, before he could react or utter a word, the helicopter disintegrated in a fireball. Brige dived for the helm, apologising to the rat's corpse as she roughly cast his body to the floor and started the engines. The debris of the helicopter dropped onto the lock between them and the Lamont pursuit, covering the lock's surface with burning jet fuel, the blade still circling their lethal arc. She hoped that would slow their pursuers down, at least for a while, as she could only crawl up the loch towards Inverarian safety. She needn't have worried. A few boats did warily follow them as far as the tiger's mouth, but Duncan Campbell had been on the phone to Lachlan McLaughlin, who, while vigorously protesting his neutrality, did at least direct his men to fire a few shots across the bows of their pursuers, forcing them to turn back and allowing Bridge to finish the remainder of the journey in peace. Never had the white-painted town of Inverary looked so sweet to a McNuchton as it did that night. A crowd lined the quayside to cheer and marvel at the rescue of their chief, who was pulled from the boat and hoisted on the shoulders of his dunyawassel in a hail of triumph back to his castle. The crowd of Campbells also cheered the crew of the little boat as they disembarked, and Duncan Campbell embraced Breach with such enthusiasm that she thought she might be crushed. An ambulance was waiting to take them all to the infirmary, and with the shouts and cheers of the crowd ringing in their ears, including unprecedented Campbell refrains of strong stands the Black Tower, they clambered aboard. To pull away from the crowd, they were grateful for the silence that fell, a silence which gave them time to think and reflect, not only on their fortuitous escape, but on the heavy price that they had paid.
Chapter 79. Reflection. But each walked down the infirmary corridor, pulling her hospital gown tightly around her. She wrapped her folded arms across her chest, not because she was cold in the stifling heat of the hospital, but more in apprehension as to what she might find in the rooms beyond. She yawned, shaking her head to dispel the fatigue that still lingered, despite sleeping for nearly 16 hours. Her friend Claire had not been very forthcoming when she'd asked about the condition of her companions, citing client confidentiality and other nonsense. So when the suspense had got too much, Bridge had eased herself out of bed and taken to the corridor to get her news first hand. The first door she came to was Kirsty's. She couldn't help breaking into a smile when she opened the door and saw Kirsty sitting up in bed talking to Gillespie. Despite the bruises on her face and the bandages that bound her hands and feet, Kirsty beamed as Bridge entered the room. They sat and talked for hours, catching up on the details of the rescue, trying to piece together a coherent story from their multiple different strands. Bridge shuddered when she heard about Donna Lamont's demise and the fate that had awaited Kirsty. She then asked Gillespie about how he'd conjured the fireball which had downed the helicopter. He explained about the tiny explosive drone that they had bought at Caddles and how he'd stumbled across it when he was desperately going through Alice's backpack, trying to find something, anything, to shoot at the helicopter. It had been pure luck that the helicopter had been hovering so close to them, but even so, he had no idea that it would be quite so effective. Bridge and Kirsty enveloped him in a double-sided bear hug, promising him that his place in the clan annals was guaranteed for all time. Bridge now asked about the remainder of the extraction team. In particular, she wanted to know about Charlie, who she'd last seen being stretched off the boat. Gillespie said they were in the next door ward, and leaving Kirsty for a moment, they wandered down the corridor together. As they entered the ward, they saw that the two beds had been pushed together as close as the medical equipment would allow. In one, his cornflower blue eyes twinkling beneath his spiky black hair was Nin, a smirk plastered across his face. In the neighbouring bed, his head swathed in bandages and his right arm encased in plaster was Charlie, his eyes just visible beneath the bands of crepe. Breeds rushed to his bedside and clutched his good hand in hers. Thank God you're alive. You've no idea how worried I've been. Ugh, you great pussy. It'll take more than a fucking helicopter gunship and a fleet of laments to take me away from you lot, Charlie said weakly, squeezing her hand before leaning back and closing his eyes, the effort of speaking clearly still too much for him. Bridge turned to Nin. What happened to him? Is he going to be okay? Aye, well the surgeon offered a brain transplant, but the stupid twat turned it down, so I guess we're stuck with him the way he is, Nin said, to gentle laughter. But seriously, he's okay. The bullet from that cunt in the helicopter smashed through his forearm and hit his rifle. It was that which clobbered him round the head. He's going to be sore for quite a while as his arm heals. They put a plate in to hold it all together. But in a couple of months he should be as right as rain. He'd just come back from theatre, which is why he's even more out of it than normal. Relieved at this prognosis, Bridge then asked about Alistair McGregor. It was Gillespie that had the news on Alistair's condition, as he'd already paid him a visit. He was in the intensive care unit up the corridor, and had spent many hours in the operating theatre as they'd extracted all the shotgun pellets embedded in his torso. He'd also lost a lot of blood, and his arrival at the infirmary had been none too soon. But at least he was stable, if unconscious. The doctors expected that he would recover in time. The room's mood darkened as they exhausted news on the living, since that meant they could no longer put off discussing the fate of Ian the Rat, their stalwart friend who'd been gunned down so cruelly. They all wept anew when they thought of his resilience and the outcome that fate had ordained. Bridge did not know how she was going to be able to look Liz in the eye again, except that everyone knew these were not normal times. The Rat had gone on the mission with his eyes wide open. They'd all known the risks, but he was a great loss. 
There will be the wake and the funeral to consider and time to reflect on the contribution that he had made to the clan. For now, she had to push the grief from her mind. Their rescue of McCallum Moore meant that at least they now had a powerful ally in their fight to restore Clan McNachton's fortunes. But in John Lambert, they also had a powerful enemy. The unprecedented assault on his home, the killing of so many of his clansmen and the emptying of his dungeons meant that he could not pause until he found out who was responsible and extracted a very public retribution. As the colonel of the Black Watch, he could bring huge military resources and the fig leaf of legitimacy to his vengeance, so she was in no doubt they would need all of McCallum Moore's strength and guile to help him survive. That evil bastard Alan Stewart still occupied Dundarav, a running sore on the honour of the clan, and from there he'd be able to wreak Lamont's vengeance on them with relative impunity. While there was no tangible evidence from to link the assault to McNuttons yet, there was no question that he'd be merciless in his pursuit of any information. But those were worries for another day. Today was a day to be glad to be alive and to save a life and love. Having said goodbye to Nin, Charlie and Gillespie, Bridge returned to her room and made a quick call. Then, having got dressed, she left the infirmary and walked along the harbour front, pausing only to smell the briny air and feel the sun on her face, before heading through the gate to the bottom of the castle drive. She wandered slowly through the cool shade of the trees, their pine scent layering an evocative astringent note on that of the sea loch. The sweep of the drive gracefully leading her through the park and around the four-square castle with its pointed witch's hat roofs until she arrived at the port cochere where McCallan Moore was waiting for her, arms outstretched. Blood Bond was written and recorded by Nick Bastin. The Reel of the Red Banner was written and performed by Ewan Henderson. This has been a Book of the Black Tower production. <laughs> <laughs>